You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Let's just call them the IP number address service provider. And they're saying to this person, when somebody asks you, how can I find this site? We want you to tell them anything but the truth. Even though you know what the address is, don't give it to the person requesting. Because by giving that address to the person requesting, you are, in our opinion, facilitating the infringement of copyright. That's the short version of the argument. And there are so many things wrong with it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. Today, Ben and I discuss an article from the International Red Cross looking at eight rules for civilian hackers during war and four obligations for states to restrain them. And later in the show, Ben and I welcome back Robert Carolina, who takes issue with our recent episode where we discuss DNS. He's going to help us get on the right track. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. Imagine a world where you're always one step ahead of cyber threats, where your defenses are impenetrable because you see what others don't. Welcome to Team Cymru's Threat Intelligence Solutions. With real-time access to the world's largest threat intelligence data ocean, they enable you to turn the tables on attackers. Transform your security from reactive to proactive through accelerated threat hunting and incident response, made possible through automation. Empower your team with visibility and insights to start defending your organization like never before. Team Cymru. Be the hunter, not the hunted. Learn more at team-cymru.com slash cyberwire. That's team-cymru.com slash cyberwire. So, Ben, we have a full show today, and I thought... uh, Perhaps rather than each of us having our own stories, we could uh, team up on this interesting article from the International Red Cross. This is from the Humanitarian Law and Policy section on their website. And it's an article titled, Eight Rules for Civilian Hackers During War and Four Obligations for States to Restrain Them. And I think this is um, certainly triggered by initially the situation in Ukraine uh, with Russia, but then also more recently the situation going on with uh, Israel and Hamas, and these groups of civilian hackers who are assisting whichever side of these conflicts that they're on uh, with some of the goings-on in in these wars. It's an interesting article, and, and I thought it might be fun for us to unpack it here together. Yeah, I think so, too. I think it is very timely. Uh, We have a very live armed conflict, and there are going to be uh, civilian hackers involved on on both sides. And I think it's important to look at an ethical framework, even if we don't expect that either side will fully follow the ethical framework. I think it's important for us to realize um, that 
some ethics need to be involved in this, just as there are ethics and international norms related to any type of offensive war activity. I think this is just the next realm of it. Uh, so I think it's very relevant uh, and important to cover. Well, let's go through the list here together. Um, uh, starting off with the uh, the eight rules for uh, civilian hackers. Uh, number one is do not direct cyber attacks against civilian objects. Yeah, this one is very important because it deals with civilian infrastructure. So things like public services, companies, private property. The one kind of gray area is civilian data. That's very broad. Uh, so perhaps there are some areas that might be fair game in a global conflict that tangentially involve uh, civilian data. But for things like public services, companies, private properties, this is very similar to just the general laws of armed conflict that to the extent that you can avoid harming civilians, uh, you do so. Your goal should be to achieve military objectives. So I think the ethics around hacking should be to compromise the physical and digital infrastructure of the military itself. If the military is using civilians as a shield, if they are hiding behind civilians, if they are making their presence known in civilian spaces, that complicates the picture. But as a general rule, attacks against civilian objects should be out of bounds. And I think that that certainly makes a lot of sense. I think that's kind of the basics of Armed Conflict 101. To the extent that you can limit harm to the civilian population, it is your obligation to do so. Yeah, and there is some crossover of these eight uh, rules that they, they outline here. And certainly they are parallel a lot of those rules of armed conflict. The second one here is, do not use malware or other tools or techniques that spread automatically and damage military objectives and civilian objects indiscriminately. Pretty straightforward. Yeah, I mean, you can think of a lot of non-digital world analogs to this. So, you know, instituting some type of chemical attack on a military base is not just going to affect that military base. Uh, there are going to be surrounding areas with civilians that are going to be protected. Once that deadly toxin is released, you've lost control of the toxin. I think that's somewhat of a, a fair metaphor here. Yeah. Uh, you can be intending to target military targets, but if uh, you have something that's spread automatically, uh, it could reach civilian objects as well, and, and that's something uh, to avoid. There's a reason we ban biological weapons. Exactly. Right? <laughs> the third one says, when planning a cyber attack against a military objective, do everything feasible to avoid or minimize the effects your operation may have on civilians. Yeah, so there are going to be things you try to do to uh, hurt your enemy's military objectives. Some of that is going to involve infrastructure, so disrupting the supply to, uh, of electricity or some type of campaign against uh, railroads so that they can prevent travel. Those are things that ostensibly would be geared toward limiting the military, but civilians might rely on that infrastructure. I think that's been highlighted in the past week in this Israel-Gaza conflict where I think Israel, after the Hamas attack, felt that in order to limit the planning capabilities of Hamas and its leadership uh, and to isolate uh, residents of Gaza, they were going to cut off electricity and water. Mm. And that spurred a, a, a pretty serious international reaction. They've been working with the United States to restore potable water, which I, obviously is critically important. There are negotiations ongoing now relating to humanitarian aid uh, and preserving energy resources for critical operations, hospitals, uh, et cetera. So 
you are, just as a, a part of any armed conflict or any conflict at all, going to want to damage your enemy's infrastructure, their ability to instigate attacks against you. But in doing so, to the extent reasonable, try to avoid uh, those attacks having an impact on the civilian population. Number four, do not conduct any cyber operation against medical and humanitarian facilities. Pretty straightforward. Yeah, very straightforward there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, hospitals, not ripe for attack, uh, should not be permitted within the laws of uh, any type of any type of conflict. Yeah, certainly uh, coming coming from the International Red Cross, whose uh, you know symbol says "Do not bomb here." Right now, there are complicating <laughs> factors. You yeah. know, I think we have to uh, approach this with all candor that. Certainly in in the Gaza Strip, there have been situations where Hamas has set up uh, training facilities, headquarters within sensitive facilities uh, and have used civilian targets as kind of a shield to protect themselves uh, when planning terrorist activity. So it's not always a black and white issue. I think to the extent that uh, you're going to have rules for this type of uh, hacking, I still think it's self-explanatory that you wouldn't primarily try to attack these, these facilities. Yeah. Number five is do not conduct any cyber attack against objects indispensable to the survival of the population or that can release dangerous forces. Yes, they mention here dams, dikes, nuclear electrical uh, engineering stations, chemical and similar plants uh, also contain dangerous forces. Mm. We saw that at the beginning of the Russia-Ukraine conflict. I believe it was Russia who attacked, was it a nuclear facility uh, located inside the country of Ukraine? Any type of cyber attack against one of those uh, facilities, it's kind of the same thing as the previous rule we talked about with malware, uh, but this is just more in the physical realm, that if you instigate harm against one of these facilities, even if it's targeted toward a military objective, it could spill over not just to the civilian population of of that country, um, but it can spread internationally as well. So. I, I think that certainly is is a wise rule. Number six is do not make threats of violence to spread terror among the civilian population. So with the example they give here, hacking into communication systems to publish information designed to spread terror among civilian populations, designing and spreading graphic content uh, to strike fear in your opponents in the conflict uh, should be unlawful. I think explicitly talking about threats of violence, using the cyber realm to instigate threats of violence designed to induce terror. That's not only going to frighten civilians, but it's also has the potential to prolong the military conflict because you're just kind of rabble rousing Hmm. uh, and perhaps creating uh, fear and and paranoia that wouldn't otherwise exist. Is this a a digital version of of dropping leaflets from the sky? I mean... you know, there's. I guess there's leaflets and there's leaflets. So, you know, put down your weapons is different from you're all going to die, <laughs> right? Or, yeah. I, I, I guess I'm, I'm showing my ignorance here on the arms of law of uh, of armed conflict. What if there's a difference with leafleting? I mean, frankly, they are using leaflets in the Israeli Hamas conflict. Israel dropped a series of leaflets on the northern part of the Gaza Strip. Right. That said. For your own safety, move to the southern portion of the Gaza Strip where we're not going to be instigating an attack. Right. Uh, I think this is very distinct and separate from that. I think this is more like the type of uh, social media scare campaigns that we've seen in in other conflicts with explicit threats um, that might induce some type of paranoia or would even inspire civilians on the other side to take arms and commit acts of terrorism. Uh, So it's more about messages designed to spread 
fear, anger, and, and paranoia. Number seven is do not incite violations of international humanitarian law. Again, pretty straightforward. Yeah, that would be a good idea. <laughs> um, so the example they, they give here, do not share technical details and communication channels to facilitate attacks against civilian institutions. Uh, seems pretty self-explanatory on that one. Yeah, and then last but not least, comply with these rules even if the enemy does not. Yeah, I mean, this is the toughest one. Oftentimes, the justification for any party in any conflict, uh, whether it's a cyber conflict or a kinetic conflict, is this idea of revenge or reciprocity. Uh, so they took a particular action on us. We are justified in responding in kind. And that's not how international humanitarian law or the law of armed conflict uh, is designed. That's not what you're supposed to do. Uh, the actions of the enemy are never a proper justification for your side to take illegal actions. And I, I, I think that's a difficult one for countries that have suffered, especially the psychological effects of such a vicious attack uh, to follow. But if you want to maintain to the international community that you support the rule of law, I think you have to abide by something like not seeking revenge or reciprocity for a, a type of attack. Hmm. A war crime is a war crime. Exactly. Uh, and the fact that the enemy committed a war crime against you does not give you any type of moral or ethical authorization to commit a similar crime against your enemy. That's not how the laws of armed conflict worked because the natural end result of that is we all die in a nuclear Armageddon. Right. Uh, so to the extent that countries follow these types of uh, rules in armed conflict, which they certainly do not always do, United States included, mm -hmm. uh, I, I think that's uh, a really key, important principle just not to uh, overstate things, but for the survival of our species is to not have this endless cycle of escalation. Yeah. There's a, a, attributed to Gandhi, perhaps apocryphal, that the, an eye for an eye in the world is blind. Yeah, absolutely. One of the great, great quotes uh, in, in human history that yeah. I certainly subscribe to. Not everybody subscribes to that. I, th I think there are theorists out there who really do believe in an, an eye for an eye. Uh, I don't. I think it's ultimately harmful to the international community. And I, I'm pleased to see that the Red Cross uh, in this document agrees here. So the second half of this is about the obligations of the states themselves to put limits on these hackers. Uh, they make the point that the, the hackers don't live in cyberspace. They live in the real world. And they outline four limitations here. First, they say, if civilian hackers act under the instruction, direction, or control of a state, that state is internationally legally responsible for any conduct of those individuals that is inconsistent with the state's international legal obligations. Yes, yeah, so you can't just farm out your offensive cyber activities to, quote, volunteers. Mm -hmm. uh, if they're hacking on your behalf, whether it's a direct relationship or indirect relationship, it's the country itself, the state itself, that is internationally legally responsible for that for that conduct. What about? Um, uh, uh, I'm just trying to think of the old old timey history of um, you know pirates and uh, uh, what are the old? What's the other um, mercenaries? Right, uh, mercenaries of the state. Yeah. Yes, yes. Is it is this a, a similar type of thing to that? Yeah, it is. Uh, I think mercenaries. Uh, have been used to exceed or violate the laws of armed conflict in a way that shields a nation-state from legal uh, liability. Oftentimes, it disguises the role that the nation-state has played in facilitating these attacks. And I think the principle at play here is just because the hacker is not a government employee 
or a direct contractor uh, with the government, that doesn't absolve the government of the responsibility. Uh, there are going to be rogue hackers uh, who are acting not at the behest of any state. Uh, but if the state is involved in any way, if they are soliciting volunteers to commit offensive cyber operations, they are legally responsible in the eyes of international law. Well, that leads us to our, our second uh, rule they propose here, which is that states must not encourage civilians or groups to act in violation of international humanitarian law. Right. So all of the principles we talked about, uh, sort of the first eight principles that we talked about here in terms of uh, the rules for cyber conflict, if you have, as a state have decided to follow these rules, follow these principles, it is not acceptable for you to delegate the uh, kind of immoral, unethical actions to your subordinates, to your civilians. Mm. Uh, so you can't just say, well, we're not going to engage in this type of offensive cyber operation, but if anybody out there in the spirit of the nation of Israel or the nation of Ukraine or the nation of Russia uh, wants to propagate this this type of attack, uh, you know, we, we can't stop you. I think that's a key principle here. There should be no inducement or encouragement for civilians themselves to engage in illegal conduct under international humanitarian law. Third, they say that states have a due diligence obligation to prevent international humanitarian law violations by civilian hackers on their territory. Yeah, I mean, this gets back to the point, a state cannot prevent all violations of the law. Uh, otherwise, we wouldn't need any laws. The state would just uh, <laughs> prevent all bad things from happening. Right. Uh, there are going to be rogue actors within states that uh, have the capability and the desire to uh, harm critical, something like critical infrastructure. Uh, what the state's responsibility is, is to take feasible measures, uh, such as uh, their public positions, or they, the positions they announce publicly, um, requiring civilian hackers to conduct operations in coordination with international humanitarian law. So I think it's important that the public position of the state involved in this conflict tell their civilians that it is the position of our government not to engage in unethical or illegal hacking under international law. Yeah. And then related to that, fourth, they say states have an obligation to prosecute war crimes and take measures necessary to suppress other IHL violations. Yeah. Uh, so we haven't always followed the prosecution of war crimes uh, in our own history. Mm. Uh, oftentimes we've chosen to look the other way when uh, the United States itself has, has violated the laws of armed conflict. Mm -hmm. um, oftentimes civil cases against U.S. government entities uh, have been dismissed, even though the allegation is that the U.S. has violated international criminal laws. Uh, I don't want to limit this to the United States. Most countries uh, have a pretty checkered history about holding their own uh, accountable for violations of international legal obligations or uh, ethical war measures. Right. So uh, this, this to me, of the four here, seems like the biggest pipe dream. Uh, <laughs> We're unlikely to see President Putin in, at The Hague. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think it's, you know, so many of these are, it's a recognition that not every state in an armed conflict is going to follow these principles. I think this is a message to those countries that want to consider themselves as part of the international community, that this is an ideal to try and follow. Right. This separates us as a humanitarian, conscious country from the barbarism of the other side. Um, so I think it can help uh, build a distinction between your side, which operates ethically and within the rules of international conflict, and the other side, which does not. 
So I think even just putting this framework out there, we can have metrics to look at whether one side in a conflict is following uh, the principles outlined here. And I think that can affect our own view uh, of which side is acting uh, within the confines of international law. You know, I'll note that uh, separate from this article from the International Red Cross, I've seen folks wondering over the past few weeks, um, do hackers lose the protection they enjoy as civilians because they're hacking? In other words, if, if you're hacking on behalf of your country in a wartime situation, can that put a target on, a physical target on you to kinetic action because of your actions? Did you lose your, your immunity, if you will, of being a civilian? Yeah, I mean, I think that particularly becomes a question if a civilian uh, acts not in accordance with the principles laid out here. Mm. Uh, but I do think uh, anybody who does engage in these type of offensive operations, at least theoretically, is subjecting themselves to being part of the armed conflict. Um, it's almost like you're forfeiting your status as a civilian. Yeah, uh, I don't think that's an explicit principle that's laid out here, um, but there's certainly a risk in that. All right. Well, we will have a link to this article in the show notes. Again, this is from the uh, International Red Cross. And of course, we would love to hear from you. If there's something you'd like us to consider for the show, you can email us. It's caveat at n2k.com. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust, AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com slash network security platform. Ben, it is my pleasure to welcome back to the show Robert Carolina. He is general counsel at the Internet Systems Consortium and also a senior teaching fellow in the Information Security Group at Royal Holloway University of London. And quickly, I want to acknowledge that Robert Carolina is joining us today on his own accord and not representing any of the organizations uh, to which he is employed or consults with. Hello, fellas. <laughs> so, uh, I am delighted to have you back, and I have to say the reason for you coming back is that uh, you wrote us a very polite but strongly worded letter. Uh, what he's trying to say is he, he ripped us a new one, is what Dave's well, trying to say. Okay, I think that's that's perhaps that's a way it could be characterized. Mm -hmm. uh, let me say that you are not the only person to write in, but your uh, letter was certainly the most direct and also the <laughs> longest. So uh, <laughs> I am, I am uh, happy to have you back. So I was trying to be constructive. <laughs> it, it absolutely was. So a few episodes back on episode 186, uh, I had a story about uh, the folks at Quad9 um, and uh, Sony coming after them uh, to try to restrict the uh, their DNS services pointing toward um, uh, some uh, content that Sony had the rights to. And you took issue with some of the ways that we characterized the story. 
and as I say, you're not the only one who had a problem with the way we presented it. So I wanted to give you the opportunity here to make your case and kind of set us straight and get us back on the right track here. So where did we blow it, Rob? Well, if you want to approach it that way, sure. Um, I think there were a couple of things. One of them is that I think you, you know, as as so many people do, mischaracterized what is the role of an organization like Quad9 in actually matching content to a destination. Um, you were kind of, you, you were sort of all over the place in terms of grappling with it. And this is something that we see routinely with people who try to grapple with the problem of understanding DNS. I think the, the quickest way to get at this is to try to explain what is actually happening and what the court is actually trying to do, rather than sort of deconstruct your thing, if, if we can take it that way. Um, sure. <laughs> just ignore what we said uh, altogether. We'll let's just get off to, well, get off was, to a fresh start. We'll take a mulligan. Since you characterized my note, I'm, I'm, I'm going to reveal how, how I opened it. I said, listening to you guys talk about this was a bit like watching a room full of kindergartners blindfolded trying to swing at a pinata. I mean, it was, it, it was, it was entertaining, but you weren't really making contact. And so, so, so rather than deconstruct that, let, let, let's start with a fresh slate. So what the case is about is a court in Germany has received a request from copyright owners, and the copyright owners have a problem. The problem they have is there is a site hosted outside of Germany that's connected to a domain name that is outside of the control of entities in Germany, and they are trying to stop people in Germany from infringing copyrights. How would those people infringe it? By downloading from this foreign site. So they can't get jurisdiction over the site operator. They can't get jurisdiction, presumably, I assume, over the registrar who sold the domain name. They can't get jurisdiction over someone we're going to talk about quite a bit in the next few minutes, I suspect, the authoritative DNS um, server for that domain. So who do they decide to target? They decide to target the, I'm going to call them, they're called the recursive resolver, but let's just call them the IP number address service provider, okay, to, to just to get us started for people who don't do uh, DNS full-time. And they're saying to this person, when somebody asks you how can I find this site? We want you to tell them anything but the truth. Even though you know what the address is, don't give it to the person requesting. Because by giving that address to the person requesting, you are, in our opinion, facilitating the infringement of copyright. Th that's the short version of the argument. And there are so many things wrong with it, it's difficult to know where to begin. So many things wrong with the argument? Well, there's a lot of things wrong with the argument. I mean, there's a copyright argument, copyright law argument about whether or not someone who merely provides a pointer to or a reference to or directions to a copyright infringing site is themselves responsible for breaching copyright. That that and that's a very copyrighty uh, answer, and I think Ben's probably stronger on copyright law than I am. Although this is a matter of German copyright law rather than rather than U.S. Um, I can't even fake being oh, okay, an expert well, on that. So. We'll, we'll, we'll find something. <laughs> yeah. We'll find something where you can. <laughs> um, so, so that's that's one question. Uh, but the the next question becomes: Well, hang on a second. 
you know, just because this stuff infringes copyright in Germany, what is it that you're asking this service provider to do? And originally, I thought, based on stuff published uh, more than a year ago, I thought originally the court was asking Quad9 to try to filter the result, as they say, specifically by reference to the geolocation of the requesting entity, which is would be in Germany. So, But the most recent case, the appeal from apparently the court in Leipzig, uh, seems to have gone so much further than that that Quad9 have stated on their website that they've taken the extreme decision to filter results asked by anybody. And, you know, which is a shame because, you know, that then you're over withholding, you know, because copyright laws are, are weirdly different from country to country. There are places where certain actions would not be an infringement and other places where they would be. So Quad9 is being asked to filter all results, or now is not being, well, now they are in the unfortunate position of feeling as though they have to filter all results, even though this particular case only relates to infringements in Germany. Well, I'm reminded of a couple of things. First of all, uh, when it comes to respecting copyrights, I remember when compact discs were brand new, the U.S. market was flooded with cheap CDs of recordings of, uh, at the time, uh, Soviet orchestras because we did not respect each other's copyrights. And so it was a way for, uh, you know, people selling classical music here in the States to get content without being obligated to pay for it. The other thing that, I, that I'm thinking of is I remember years ago someone saying that if you wanted to get rid of the Nazis on Twitter – tell Twitter that you're in Germany and mm. they would be filtered out because of the rules in Germany having to do with Nazis and, and content. Um, I don't know the degree to which that is true, but that was the lore. And it, it, that's part of, partly what you remind me here by, by saying that part of their original request perhaps was that they merely filter, maybe not merely, but they filter traffic originating in Germany. Well, now let's and let's also pause there for a moment because you use the phrase filtering traffic, yeah, and, and that can create some confusion. Keep in mind that Quad Nine and any DNS recursive resolver is simply fulfilling a function very similar to uh, what those of us of a certain age will remember as directory assistance. Um, so, so let me just play out this analogy because I think this helps to focus what the problem is and what the problem isn't. A recursive resolver is very much like the old-fashioned service of dialing 411. A human being answered the phone and says, you know, you're asking for a phone number. What number would you like? You gave that person a name and some coordinates, you know, so-and-so who lives in thus and such city. And a few moments later, the person would say, here is the number that you want. So you ask them to match a name with a specific phone number. And they did that. That's the, re the role of the recursive resolver. But the question becomes, how does the recursive resolver or how does our 411 operator get that answer? And the answer is they have to look in an official directory someplace. So the 411 operator picks up like the local subscriber database directory and looks it up and, and gives you an answer. Well, on the internet, of course, we're dealing with a 411 operator who has to be able to answer queries for every single location on the pla every place on the earth. So our recursive resolver has to find 
the authoritative name server, which is a different type of DNS service. And that authoritative name server is a database that answers the question, if I'm looking for www.superevilbadguys.com, how do I look that up? How do I look up the number for that? Oh, you can find that at this particular name server. So you look at that name server and you get the answer. Well, what if I don't know where the name server is? Well, then I have to look at a different authoritative name server, which is a directory of directories. And, and, it, and it builds up like that until you... So the, the recursive resolver assembles the answer based on a combination of what you asked, what it already knows because it's had to answer questions like this before, and what it can look up from authoritative directories in different places around the world. So people who do the recursive resolving piece are sitting right squarely in the middle of DNS traffic. But the only thing they're doing, to get back to my original point, they're not actually carrying anything to anywhere. They're not dialing the phone for you. They're not connecting the call. They're not routing the traffic. They're not carrying the packets. They're not transmitting or receiving any substance. So they're not making copyright. They're not making copies of the infringing material. They're not fulfilling that function of being an internet service provider, unless, except for internet service providers who also do this. But they're two very, very separate functions. So this was not a case where the court was seeking to interfere. I think a word you used last time was interfering with the routing. They weren't technically trying to interfere with the routing of traffic. They were trying to interfere with the process of looking up the answer to directory inquiries. So let me ask you this. Were they requesting, using your analogy of the 411, of directory assistance... Were they requesting that the directory assistance professional not answer that question, or were they requesting that the answer not be in the book that the directory assistance person goes to look things up in? Hmm, Good question. The first. They were saying, using my metaphor, they were asking the directory service operator to it, whether or not you know the answer to this question, tell the customer, I don't know the answer to that question. Or in some other cases like this in other countries pursuing other agendas, they'll say, don't give the correct answer to the customer. Lie to the customer and give them this other number, which is under government control because we want to see who's visiting that particular resource. But in this case, I, I don't think that was in play. Now, there are other times where courts and others will tell the directory maintainer in the background, we want you to change the entry in your directory in accordance with our instructions. Probably the most dramatic example of that is when U.S. government agencies use court procedures to seize a domain name from the .com domain. Uh, ben will love this. They they essentially issue what I believe to be an in rem action mm-hmm. directed to the dot com registry. They're the ones who maintain the directory of directories for dot com. They maintain a directory of every single domain name and says if you want the if you want the authoritative directory for this domain, you look at that particular site. So the in rem action is directed to the dot com registry and says repoint that at this particular government thing, and we'll decide where that that traffic goes. That's changing the official directory entry, but that's not this case. 
I think one of the things that, that you took issue with and, and other folks wrote in as well was our using an analogy of, of a bus service or a taxi or something like that. And, and someone uh, pointed out, and I can't recall if it was in your letter or not, that um, it's kind of like if, it, let's say you get into a taxi and you say, I want you to take me to Bob's house of illegal downloaded software. And the taxi driver says, I'm sorry, I can't take you there. But you could just as well get in the taxi and say, I want you to take me to 123 Main Street, which is where that place is. In, indeed. And and I like I like the way that you employed the metaphor this time, but I don't like the metaphor. Okay. And, and the reason I don't like the taxi metaphor, because I find that transportation metaphors of carrying people get bogged down and distract from the reality of the internet. So instead of using a taxi or a bus metaphor, I would urge us to talk about uh, package delivery, you know, something like a, a package delivery service or, or mail service or a carrier service, because we're not going back and forth. We're just asking for information to go back and forth. We're asking somebody to carry our packets for us, literally carry our packets for us and get the return packets back. And you're absolutely right. This type of order, the recursive resolver provider would say, I want to go to superevilbadguys.com they say, I don't know where that is. Well, I want to go to 192.1.something.something, which is actually not a public IP address. But and, and, and the internet service provider would say, oh, I know where that is. In the same way that if you pick up the phone to, you know, Data Express package delivery company, um, and you say, I want you to send this to Evil Empire Incorporated. Oh, I don't know where, I'm going to lie and tell you I don't know their address. Oh, well, it's 123 Main Street, Anytown, Maryland. Oh, I'll take a package there, Sweet 1600. Now, but that metaphor also has a weakness. <laughs> did, of you think it does. This, did you think this was going to be easy? <laughs> that, that metaphor has a flaw, particularly when we're looking at web traffic. And that is if you want to resolve a website, Having the IP number alone is not enough information for the other side to return the content that you're looking for. Because the site server, the server where the site is hosted, will be co-hosting a lot of different pages on a single IP address number. So finding the IP address number alone is not enough to resolve the website. You need the IP address number and you need a way to pass the information about the website address to the server. So if you just entered the IP number in your browser in place of the domain name, most of the time that's not going to get you the content. You have to do something else. Now there are many something else's you can do, but that's just that's just where the metaphor slightly breaks down. Well, getting back to the original case with Quad9, what is your take on on this action? Do do you think justice is being done here? Not especially. Um, I, don't, I don't think it's a good action to take. But the reason I think it's not a good action to take is because I'm not really sure that tinkering with DNS is the most appropriate way for a court to enforce its orders. I mean, and now, now we get to the problem of jurisdictional arbitrage. You know, we said earlier that some places in the world enforce copyright, you know, they enforce copyright differently. And what courts do for a living is at least in theory, is to enforce their laws for the protection of their residents in their place. That, that's their job, 
you know, the, we can argue with whether that's really their job or not, but you know, that that's what we all uh, believe in. So if they're looking for a tool that prevents the entry of, let's call it illicit material into their country, I just don't think that tinkering with the global addressing system, the global unified addressing system is the way to fix that problem. It, it leads us down a path where we start to lose the thing that we all want for the internet, which is a single unbroken name and number space. We're getting into a world now where people say, well, where is this? Oh, it might be, well, it's here, but I'm going to lie to you and tell you it's there. Or I'm not going to tell you the answer to that information. Or you don't get to know, you know at a technological level. I don't think that's the way to do it. And in this case in particular, of course, you have a court in Germany addressing an order to someone providing this service from Switzerland. I mean, you know, resolving DNS addresses is meant to be, was designed to be something that was not inherently bound up in questions of jurisdiction. It was meant to be a very technical process by which we simply match domain name resources with IP number resources. It was meant to get us into a position where end users didn't have to enter long strings of numbers as you did on a telephone and instead could just use something easygoing. Was it ultimately naive to think that that could survive scrutiny of global politics? Well, I I think there's a couple of different factors. I mean, there is a certain degree of... um, of naivete on these kinds of matters, but equally there, there's, there's kind of an unfortunate, but real aspect, but pragmatic aspect of this that you, that you guys also didn't talk about. And that is keep in mind that the people providing this service, you know, not just quad nine, but just about everybody in the recursive resolver service space to some degree filter their answers. But when they do it, they, to my knowledge, they all uniformly do it on the basis of we get reports about sites that are hosting malware. And the most efficient way to keep malware out of the hands of regular human beings like you and me, who have no clue about how to configure advanced security settings, let alone worry about our DNS, is to just kind of tell a a, a little fib to the end user and say, oh, you're, you're trying to connect to evil empire, you know, version 27.com. You, you really don't know. We, we, we don't, we don't know where that is. And the end user just is, oh gosh, I can't connect to that. I wonder why. And then they move on. Now, having said that, even though these people, DNS resolvers and, you know, quad nine does it, Google does it, uh, Cloudflare does it. Um, they also, For people who are very aware, give an unfiltered service offering that you can plug into. So, for example, Quad9, literally 9.9.9.9, is the DNS service landing point for the security-filtered version of Quad9. Whereas if you want the completely unfiltered, okay, use it at your own risk, drive to whatever neighborhood you wish, you know, here's the complete unfiltered map, Mm 9.9.9.10. You know, Quad Quad Nine has a very good explainer on their website, and they have a, they have a third level of service that sort of sits in between those two. So, so there is, I think that filtering 
Unfortunately, I think this is kind of a sad reality that DNS filtering is probably here to stay, but it's the sort of thing that ought to be used very carefully and very sparingly, and I don't think this is the kind of case where it's used to best effect, in part because, now now I'm going to be really provocative, there are so many ways around this thing. Um, you know, just having this thing addressed to Quad9, Quad9 provides a significant but very tiny proportion of the world's recursive resolver service. So would you remove intellectual property disputes entirely from, in your perfect world, if you're made king, would you only have restrictions on uh, transactions dealing with things like malware and just cut out any type of claim based on intellectual property violations? Well, in, in my perfect world, Ben, I, I wouldn't be using DNS filtering I, as a tool of state intervention, as a tool of state action. I see. Um, I, I think the better vector is for them to talk to people who are in their own jurisdiction using whatever technological methods are available at that level. Now, some people in the networking community might say, well, the tools available there are not always effective and that's always going to be a true statement, no matter which tools you choose. I just think that tinkering with the DNS as a as an extension of state authority is inherently dangerous because it breaks the name and number space for purposes of state content policy rather than for purposes of engineering efficiency or self-selected security choices. All right. Well, Robert Carolina is general counsel at the Internet Systems Consortium and also a senior teaching fellow in the Information Security Group at Royal Holloway University of London. Robert, thank you so much for taking the time for us and uh, setting us straight and also giving us a better understanding of the issue. I, I truly appreciate you reaching out to us. Uh, my pleasure. I'm, I'm looking forward to the follow-up. Uh, you can forward me the follow-up correspondence from people telling you how many things I got wrong. Deal. <laughs> oh, I can't wait for that. Yeah. Get a taste of your own medicine, Robert. Yeah, it'll, it'll happen. <laughs> Trust me, it'll happen. With over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30-plus year partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash fedcyber. That's aka.ms slash fedcyber. that is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. A quick reminder that N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. The show is edited by Trey Hester. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening. <laughs>